Good morning. Today is Friday, August 19th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in. How do you listen to the show? Over the air on AM850, online at kfuo.org, or as a podcast? No matter how you connect, I'm glad you're here. Settle in, get ready to open your Bible. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the generous folks at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about what they do at lhfmissions.org. Now, if you have questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you just want to say hello, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Now, yesterday in chapter 5, we heard the apostle proclaim, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And then he said, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. How amazing is God's grace, even as our sins multiply? But could St. Paul's message of grace be misused or misinterpreted? Let's find out today as we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and we'll be digging into all 23 verses this morning. And to help guide our shovels, we're joined today by a newcomer to Thy Strong Word, the Reverend Dr. Peter Elliott, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Pastor Elliott, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Be with you. Now, Pastor Elliot, you know, I have the pleasure of knowing you way back when, when we were in seminary together. We were actually neighbors, folks. Uh, for our last year, our apartments were right next to each other. But Pastor Elliot, tell me how things have been going for you lately. How is God working through you and your congregation there in Seattle? Yeah, well, I just moved. Uh, I came from uh, St. John, Fraser, Michigan, which is by Detroit. It's actually where LHF began uh, in the basement of that church. And, oh, uh, and uh, I just picked up my seven kids and moved to Seattle, a place that I never thought I'd live. Um, funny story, I, actually this last Christmas, my dad was trying to get me to move to Texas. I told my dad, that's not where the Holy Spirit has called me. And, uh, and, but he, he wanted me to come to Texas, and I, and I said, that's too hot in Texas. He said, well, where do you want to live? I said, well, not the West Coast. Not Seattle or Portland. Definitely not there. Uh, God would have to make it very clear to me if he wants me to live in Seattle. And the next morning, this congregation contacted me. So, uh, Oh, wow. And, and lo and behold, I'm here. I've, I've preached uh, two sermons here. Uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderful congregation. Um, interesting context, obviously, in Seattle. Uh, urban, but it's very beautiful out here. And, and uh, the people have been receiving God's word well. Uh, Bible class attendance has been going well, so it's uh, it's a very exciting time, new start. Wow. Now, you know, it's so funny. God's plans for us often remind us just who's in charge, don't they? <laughs> now, true. you know, when, when I think of Seattle, let's be honest, it has a little bit of a reputation for being maybe a little hostile to the ways of Christ um, as a whole. And I know that doesn't speak for everybody that lives in the area, surrounding areas, but is that some of the apprehension you might have had, and, and does that meet your expectations when you get there? 
yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely a politically uh, a far left area, um, definitely an unchurched area. Uh, but, you know, they need the gospel. So that's why I'm here. That's right. We go where we are needed. And I'm based on your reputation. And of course, what I know about you, it sounds like you're going to be the right man for the job out there. That's great. Now, before we dig into the scriptures, though, would you uh, would you mind beginning our time together in prayer? Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for your word. which reveals to us your son and the salvation that he has won for us. We thank you for sending us Christ, and we ask that uh, you would illuminate your word, that you would we'd be protected from all errors, and be guided into your truth. We pray this not because we deserve it, but only through Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read some verses at a time, and we'll just take them section by section. I begin with chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We'll stop there. Just in that first paragraph, Paul is beginning one of these famous diatribes with with a question that's rhetorical, and he answers it right away. But it seems to have to do about, you know, how people are responding to his proclamation of grace in the very uh, chapter that preceded it. Yeah, so this, this chapter is a hinge. You know, chapter one of Romans... Uh, the world is exceedingly evil, right? And chapter two is you're no better for the things that they do openly. You have those evil desires within your heart. Uh, you know, you who judge, uh, you're also uh, guilty. So chapter three, um, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Right? We're all in the same boat apart from Christ, uh, but we're justified by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That beautiful uh, chapter we read at Reformation Day, uh, and then four and five, and so the first five chapters have really uh, destroyed an error that we find in the church called self-righteousness. And that's this idea that I'm a good person, that I think myself is righteous. It's always funny when you criticize a self-righteous person. You say, hey, you're being self-righteous. They say, no, I'm not. I'm a good person. It's like, well, that's exactly what I just said. You think you're a good right. person. Um, and so those chapters have really attacked that error. Uh, but like in all things, there's usually an opposing error. And the opposing error to self-righteousness is something that I, I like to call lawlessness, or sometimes we call it licentiousness. There's many names for it. But it's this idea that uh, the grace of God gives me license to sin. And, uh, and, so, and so there's kind of a hinge here uh, to look that other direction and to, and to kind of destroy lawless thinking. You know, Luther, he, he tells the story of the drunken peasant, that uh, the theologian is like a, a drunken peasant, and he, you push him back up on the horse, and he falls off the other side. And then you get him, and you push him back on the horse, and he falls off the other side. And, th and that's how these two opposing errors of self-righteousness and lawlessness work. That if a, if a denomination or an individual is concerned with only one of these, 
you're going to fall off the other side. Uh, You know, I think historically the Missouri Senate, we we can sniff out a self-righteous person from a mile away. And so (laughs) I would say, I would say that's how I grew up. I grew up, uh, I could, I could point out a Pharisee very easily. Um, And so then the dangerous lawlessness, I know in in my ministry, that's the danger that I've run into a lot, but then I've got to be careful because then once you get concerned with the one error, you can fall back into the other, right? So that's uh, that's kind of the, the... well, I was just going to say, you know, Paul says elsewhere, like in Galatians 2, 9, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And he says in Colossians, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So he speaks so often about dying to the law that you're absolutely right. When taken out of context— People start to fall, and they fall off that other side of the horse, as you said. Another word for it, you would agree, is antinomianism, which really just means what you said, lawlessness. It's this idea that, you know, if we're saved by faith, then we just don't have to be concerned about obeying the law. But Paul's making that exact opposite statement here. Yeah. Why, Why I avoid antinomianism a little bit is because it's become a technical term for those that say the law shouldn't be preached to Christians. And like historically it became a technical term. Um, and so I think lawlessness just is a little bit more broad because I find a lot of lawless preachers, um, they'll, they'll preach the law, but then the kind of the, the gospel negates it. And like, it, it, it's kind of like, Oh, I was just scaring you. I didn't mean it. <laughs> so, oh, sure. um, and so I think lawless is a little bit broader of a term. The Bible also calls the lawless, they call them evildoers. Um, they're not just uh, those who have sin, but they're practitioners of evil. They're, they're living evil lifestyles. They're the wicked, the godless, those who walk according to the flesh. Uh, the the, the uh, confessions have an interesting term for these folks, and that's they are those living under the Epicurean delusion. And uh, the Epicureans uh, thought that life is all kind of about uh, simple pleasure. And so the Epicurean delusion is this idea that life's all about being happy. And uh, it talks about those who, and so uh, like, for instance, the solid declaration uh, on good works, it says uh, phrases like good works are necessary must be employed against those who, uh, who are secure, who have a secure Epicurean delusion. For many create in themselves a dead faith or delusion that lacks repentance and good works, that they act as though there could be a true faith in the heart at the same time with wicked intention to persevere and continue in sin. And then he quotes this passage that we just read. So So Paul says here, you know, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Um, We too, so as that, we too might walk in newness of life. And one criticism of Lutheran preaching, at least for the past, you know, 500 years, it has been that, you know, we spend a lot of time proclaiming that we are saved by faith, not by works, a very, very important doctrine. It speaks and preaches against those who have fallen off, as you said earlier, on that one side of the horse into self-righteousness. But what I have heard over the past, say, 100 years or 50 years is that we have been preaching for so long that you cannot work your way into heaven that we failed to notice that the people in the pews are not trying to work their way into heaven. That doesn't tend to be the predominant sin. We aren't dealing with folks who are running themselves ragged, 
trying their hardest to please God by all of their pious good works. So this message really is a message for our time as we run into Christians and unchristians, non-Christians alike who don't understand that being in Christ means that, yes, of course we're saved, but that faith results in, of course, good works. Yeah. So, yeah, there's all, and, and then, but I, I find myself, I, I have to be careful, right? Because um, even though it's, I, I think you're right, uh, you know, pride is always there lurking, waiting to pounce in, in my heart and for me to think I'm somehow superior. Now, one of the real interesting things about these two opposing errors is, uh, is the idea of distinction. So the right, the righteous, the self-righteous person wants there to be a, a distinction between them and those that are less righteous than them, right? They want there to be this two-tier system. And so Paul levels that in Romans 3, saying there's no distinction, right? Uh, and that's a, apart from Christ. There's no distinction. We're all condemned in our sin. Uh, but then what's interesting to me is that the lawless heart doesn't want there to be a distinction. The lawless heart says, ah, oh, we're all sinners. We're all the same. Sin's all the same. Uh, you've probably heard this before. You know, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm addicted to pornography, but you have lustful thoughts. So same, same, same. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. yeah, I murdered a guy, but you have angry thoughts. Same, same, same. And they kind of use the Sermon on the Mount to kind of argue this. But see, that, that's, that's the lawless heart twisting the words of Jesus actually to excuse their flesh and, give, and, uh, and, and to think that they can still live in sin, which is why Paul says what he says here. Uh, that how can we who've died to sin still live in it? Don't you know? Haven't you been catechized? Don't you know what, uh, and oh, St. Paul wouldn't say this, but I'll say this. Don't you know what Luther writes in the catechism? <laughs> that, that baptism indicates that the old Adam in us should be, by day to contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Don't you know? This is basic Christianity, uh, that, that as Christians— the law has produced contrition in our hearts, that we are terrified of, of, of how we stand before God based on our sin. But then the gospel produces faith in our hearts and, uh, and, uh, and, and makes us new creatures entirely. And, uh, and don't you know, he says. So. Well, we all know that St. Paul was an excellent, faithful Lutheran. But uh, where does baptism fit in here? You know, all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We see being connected to Christ's death and baptism, but spell that out for our listeners. How does that apply? How can we take whatever that means and communicate it to those who might have a different understanding of baptism or no understanding at all? Yeah, so this passage, I, I think there's not much— it's it's hard to get around what it says, and so this is a passage that you would want to read uh, with your friends uh, that uh, that reject bat baptismal re regeneration or something like this. Um, one, notice that baptism unites us to Christ and to His death and resurrection. I mean, how beautiful is that? That you are united to Jesus, that you have fellowship with Jesus. Um, you know what could be better than that? Um, one thing to think about is that baptism is cross-shaped, uh, and we got to think about what the cross uh, is. You know, the cross is like it's the harshest law and the sweetest gospel. Uh, first of all, it's the harshest law because 
he's dying for my sins. So I see what my sins deserve when I see him on that cross. You know, ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here you may view its nature rightly. Here the guilt you may estimate. And so the cross uh, should produce terror in us that this is what my, I, my sins deserve. You know, I think I'm a good person. You look at the cross, I guess I'm not. If he had to die for me. But then also the, the cross is, you know, the pure gospel that, that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And baptism uh, delivers that cross to me. It delivers this truth to me. It applies it to me. Um, uh, and, and, and to live in my baptism is to live in this, this reality that, yes, my sin is, is terrible. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and to mourn the reality of my wretched heart, but also to rejoice that, that the Father has given me his only son to take on my sins. And so to live in my baptism is to live in the cross and, and to daily remember that I've been united to this cross and I've been united to this, this wonderful Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks more about how our baptism connects us to Christ in the following verses. So let's keep going. I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's hard to argue that baptism, when, it's con when it connects us to Christ's death, doesn't also make us alive with him, that it doesn't also actually do something that God isn't using it when you read these passages for what they say. Help us understand these next few verses uh, for baptism and what that old self is. How do, we, how do we manage that in our lives? Yeah, so like I said, the, 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 the lawless person doesn't want there to be a distinction uh, between uh, them uh, and, and anybody else. But, but what Paul's saying is there's a huge distinction between those who have the Holy Spirit and those who don't, those who have been united to Jesus and those who, who haven't, uh, that, that those who have been united to Jesus through baptism and through faith are, 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 now, are now new creatures, and they're alive. Um, uh, you know, and so and, and this makes all the difference in the world, that there is a distinction to be made. You know, apart from Christ, you're all equally condemned. But having Christ makes a difference, um, and you have, been, you have been connected to him. You know, uh, I, I love these first five verses because we, we say them at uh, funerals. You know, right? we say three through five at the beginning of the funeral. Um, so a special place in my heart uh, that, uh, that th that's where the rubber meets the road, right? <laughs> but that, that uh, we're going to be eternally saved uh, because we have been connected to Christ and we have fellowship with Christ. But it also makes a difference in this life. Uh, that uh, that we uh, that we are no longer slaves to sin. This this uh, verse six. That our old self. You know, it's interesting that our culture, uh, the old Adam here, you know, old man. But but it's interesting that our culture 
it says, be yourself, right? Be true to yourself. Um, uh, you know, be authentic. And, 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 and there's a half truth there. But it's interesting how often in the Bible it's deny yourself, crucify your old self, know that your old self was crucified in baptism so that the body of sin, this, this sinful life uh, that you're living, uh, might be uh, brought, this sinful, um, I guess, old nature, might be brought to nothing. And there it's, I think uh, you could translate this like rendered ineffective. It's not like it's brought to nothing, like it no longer exists, but it no longer has dominion. It no longer has control, right? You can actually now resist. And why can you now resist it? Because the Holy Spirit is in you, right? And the Holy not Spirit be, is powerful. Like, to, to not be enslaved to it doesn't mean that you can't willingly return and serve it. And, you know, Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 4, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt. In Colossians, he speaks also of do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. So I really like how you bring up this countercultural idea that God calls us to take our old self and recognize that because we're no longer enslaved to sin, that that has been, as Luther might say, drowned in our baptism. And yet the world is saying, you know, if you want to know how you should live, then then follow your heart, be your true self, own your own truth, and go out and do those things. But that is a very enticing message from the world, that what you do is sanctified because you're being your authentic self. But Christ and St. Paul uh, here points us to Jesus' death, which actually doesn't want us to follow in our authentic self, but wants to renew us in his image, which is, of course, the self that we want. Yeah. Um, in, in the old uh, mobster movies, there's this phrase where the mob boss will say to one of his uh, former employees, you're dead to me, right? And this, I always think right. about this uh, in this passage, that this is how we need to view sin and our, and our sinful desires, uh, that, that when they when they rear their ugly heads, when when they when they lure us, when they tempt us, you're dead to me. What, what's our relationship? That I would listen to you. If you're gonna do a romantic metaphor, uh, we could quote Taylor Swift: "We are never getting back together." Right? <laughs> like mm, right. whenever sin comes around, that's not happening. Um, I, I consider this parable. I don't think I invented this parable. I think I heard it somewhere, but I don't know where I heard it. But consider this parable. Imagine you have a friend uh, who has an abusive spouse, utterly abusive spouse, and you mourn this uh, for your friend. And imagine uh, your friend's spouse dies in a boating accident. They drowned. Uh, and, and there's a little part of you that's, that's happy, not because you delight in the death of anybody, but that your friend is finally free from the constant uh, physical abuse that, that they were suffering. And then imagine your friend finds a perfect husband. You know, this is Jesus in this metaphor. Uh, he finds a perfect husband that, that loves her and cares for her and is gentle and kind and lays down his life for her. But then imagine your friend then says, says to you in private, hey, I, uh, I, I'm starting to see this other guy behind my husband's back, you know, uh, Sid, <laughs> representing Sid. I'm starting to see this other guy. What do you think? You know, he's kind of exciting. You know, what would you say to your friend? You would say, you are insane. You've already lived right. that abuse. 
You already know what it's like to be under an abuser and you have a perfect husband. Why would you ever even consider this? And that's why I think we have to realize about Paul's argument here. It is from, from a, from an orthodox perspective, this is utterly ludicrous that you would hold hands with sin, that you would delight in sin. You know, we, we believe that sin is, is terrible for us. It's abusive to us. It's why Christ had to die, that, that sin is the enemy. There's just no way uh, that, that you would ever want to return to that relationship that you used to have. Um, and you think about a, a sporting metaphor, uh, it's like it'd be like rooting for the wrong team. You know, when I was in the Midwest, uh, everyone was a you know Michigan fan or Michigan State, and the, the arch rivals Ohio State, right? This is mm-hmm. it's like rooting for Ohio State to give in to sin willfully. <laughs> it's like like may it never be. Right? It's a, <laughs> may, may it never be. Or to give a military example, what if a military says, "Well, I, I sh-, uh, the soldier says I shoot most of my bullets at the enemy." But every once in a while, I shoot a bullet at my at my own fellow soldier. He's <laughs> like, that's that's insane, you know. So once once you view Jesus as your Lord, and once you view sin as the enemy, uh, it's just there's just no way that you could have this lawless attitude. Uh, although we always slip back into it. Here's a couple more verses just to bring into this conversation as we're heading toward the break. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So I definitely wanted to bring in those verses because it's exactly what you're talking about. When we are freed from our enslavement to sin, it doesn't prohibit us from returning to that sin. It doesn't prohibit us from falling off the horse time and again on either side. But we are empowered by what? The Holy Spirit to then present our members as instruments to God to do his will for righteousness. How do you explain, Pastor, this idea that, yes, we've died to sin, and when we think of someone having died, they don't come back. We've been brought a life in Christ, but we still have this concupiscence, this desire, this old Adam. You know, we've drowned the old Adam, but he's a good swimmer. You know, it's, it, that's a, it's a contradictory <laughs> kind of understanding. So help yeah. us understand as we have a few minutes before the break, you know, how do, why do we still wrestle with sin, and where's the grace in how God helps us cope with it? Yeah. So the Holy Spirit makes a difference, right? And, and having the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to resist. And when we fail, uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, brings us to repentance. Um, but uh, th- this new obedience that we have, this, this, uh, this you know, um, sanctification, um, it's begun in this life, but it doesn't, it doesn't find its completion uh, un- until... Uh, eternity. So, uh, it, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny when you explain this to a new Christian because they kind of assume that you kind of get past this stuff, and, and that's obviously not true. Uh, that it's a lifelong battle. Uh, 
in Revelation, you have this uh, refrain to the letters of the churches, to the one who conquers. And, and what is the person who is conquered in the battle? The one who dies and they're still fighting, right? The one who never <laughs> surrenders. The one who never surrenders. Um, uh, you know, that it's one thing uh, to be overwhelmed um, in a war. It's another thing to, to surrender to the enemy, right? So, um, yeah, you're, you're, we're going to fall. We're going to fail. We're even going to be uh, treasonous at times as Christians, uh, in, in this war. Uh, but the one thing that, that we just can never do is surrender to the enemy. Um, and to the one who conquers, I'll give you the crown of life. Uh, the, I always think of this, I always think of movie metaphor, you know, movie scenes for different uh, parts of uh, doctrine. The movie scene I think about to hear is uh, uh, the movie First Night, which is uh, King Arthur, Round table, you know, uh, right. Sean Connery, Richard Gere. Anyway, the, spoiler alert, it's an old movie. Spoiler alert, at the end <laughs> of the movie, uh, King Arthur has, uh, through, his, through his anger at Lancelot, he has allowed his ki- kingdom to fall. And so the enemy is in the castle. They're on the ramparts. Uh, he, he, he has lost Camelot. And they all have their crossbows pointed at his chest. And the enemy says, kneel. You know, and uh, he gives this, you can go watch this on YouTube. He gives this speech <laughs> where he says, you know, you know, all things must come to an end. Uh, uh, don't be afraid. He goes, and, and my final act is king. And he pretends he's going to kneel. And then he stands up and says, fight, fight and never <laughs> surrender. And, and, and of course, he it. dies. He dies shouting this. But this is always what I think about in passages like this, in like Ephesians 6, so many other passages. It, these are battle cries to fight and fight and never surrender. In fact, the word uh, in verse like uh, 13 and uh, yeah, 13 is twice. This word instruments uh, can actually be uh, translated weapons. Do not present oh. your, your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but present them as weapons for righteousness to God. And so this is, I think this is warfare language. Uh, and, and that this is a call that as a Christian, yeah, we're pretty pathetic, aren't we? But we are to fight and fight and never surrender. You, you know, we never give into the passions, although you, you will, but then, but then turn quickly and run back to Jesus and, and, and whatever you do, never surrender to the enemy. So, Deep thoughts. Being, I think this is yeah. a good, I was just going to say, I think this is a good time to take just a quick Pause. When we return from our break, Pastor Elliot and I will continue our discussion of Romans chapter 3. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. 
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Dr. Peter Elliott, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Now, before the break, Pastor Elliott was getting us all excited about fighting against our sins with the sword of our faith. We had to take a break, brother, before you started a revolution. But before we move on to our next text, do you want to finish any of those thoughts, though? Because I really do. I love the illustrations that you're making because we often see Christianity or maybe the world, you know, portrays Christianity as people who are are burdened and oppressed by all of these rules and regulations and laws. But when you're in the church, you you understand that these aren't rules and regulations so much as they are descriptions of your new life and weapons with which the, uh, you can fight against sin, that the Lord blesses you. So anything else you want to cover before we move on to what it means to be uh, no longer slaves under sin, but slaves to righteousness? Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking, you know, I, I'm a third born and uh, third borns are famous for being rebellious or kind of being strong willed or whatever. And um, and I don't know if it's true for other people. But it's, true. it's been true for me. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and so having this kind of rebellious nature, there's something delightful that here uh, God gives me permission to to uh, to be rebellious against my own passions to be rebellious right. against sin, death, devil, and world, that I get, to, I get to actually use that rebellious nature in myself, that uh, when, uh, when my sinful passions, think, you know, seven deadly sins, when pride, lust, envy, all these things, sloth is a big one for me, uh, when they tempt me uh, and they lure me and they tell me that they have to, I have to obey them, I get to rebel. <laughs> That's right. They say, no, you know, no I, I, I belong to the Lord Jesus. Um, one thing I, I, I want to emphasize that I haven't maybe made clear is this idea of resisting the devil, you know, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Um, the reason why it works is not because uh, I have some technique or talent or that I'm superior to other people. The reason why it works is because we have the Holy Spirit, we have Jesus, and the devil is afraid of Jesus, right? The devil's not scared of right. you. You're easy. You're easy pickings, uh, but but the devil's scared of Jesus. And I have an, I have another movie movie analogy for you. And that's hey, I love movies. Lion, Go for it. The Lion King and the Lion King. Uh, early in the movie, Simba wanders off into the, the you know the shadow lands, and uh, and he's surrounded by hyenas. If you remember, he's, he's pinned against a corner and uh, and surrounded by the enemy. Uh, Simba <laughs> he he growls. And when he growls, they laugh at him, right? And this, this is you on your own. You know, you resist temptations. Uh, they laugh at you. <laughs> and, but then the second time when Simba goes to growl, there's this huge roar behind him. And that's because his dad has shown up. Right. And, 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 and this is what it's like for Christians. We resist the devil and he flees, not because our little growl, but because we have been united to Christ in baptism, that we have Jesus uh, so we actually can resist. Now, often uh, I, I, I fall prey to a sin uh, before I even realize kind of what's happening. I just get duped. I'm, 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 a, I'm a weak, uh, sinful being. But in that moment, I realize what's happening. Hey, I think I'm gossiping right now. In the moment where I, I kind of catch on to what's happening, I can fight back. And I think this is a glorious thing to tell people. I think a lot of people don't, don't even realize this. They think, well, you know, I'm going to fall prey to it anyway. 
it's like no temptation is, has, you know, overtaken you. It's not common to man, you know, God, you know, with the way, with the temptation, God will give you the way of escape. This idea that we can actually fight back. Um, and I think uh, it's one of these lies of the devil where he says, no, you can't fight back. We all just give in. So, so put your weapons down and surrender. Um, and so this call to fight. Um, uh, just just one, one note before we move on. Uh, this, sure. Uh, uh, that says we are not under law, but under grace. You know, I think the word under there um, is kind of under the uh, power, under the influence, um, under the jurisdiction, we might say. I can't think of a great way to say it in English. But we're not under the jurisdiction of the law. You know, I think this connects to what he'll say later in 8.1, that there's now no condemnation. So we're, 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 not, we're no longer under the condemning uh, power of the law. That doesn't mean that we don't like the law. I know Paul says in the next chapter, I delight in the law in my inner being, right? We actually love the law, uh, but uh, we are not under its um, coercion. We're not under its, its, uh, its guilt and power uh, to condemn us. And so, so now we approach the law. It's actually why we can delight in the law. I can delight in the law because I'm no longer condemned. And instead, when I look at the law, I see a picture of my Jesus, and I want to be like him. So just a little note there. Well, I'm still reeling from your Lion King reference. I've never heard that one before. I'm, I bet it's showed up in at least one or two of your sermons because it's absolutely great. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. And it, I will it, use it. I will steal it and tell everybody that I came up with it. So let's awesome. move on. I, 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 fully, I fully support that. <laughs> let's let let us move on though cuz there's so much great things to so many great things to cover in this next section. We're I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter that way we don't have to pause anymore to take breaks to get the to get the verses in. This is going to be verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." Now, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like a great law gospel sermon, Paul just is hammering home the law here in the very last verse. But we're not quite there yet. We're still back at the top, and he presents yet another trademark diatribe rhetorical introduction. What then 
Are we just to keep on sinning? It's kind of the same question, but it's a real problem. Take us through this, Pastor. Yeah. Uh, Let me read you what uh, Philip Melanchthon writes uh, on this opening section. He says, you are not under the law. This seems almost absurd. For good natures, you know, a regenerate Christian, uh, we love nothing more greatly than the law. Therefore, it is bound to happen that it will be greatly offended by these seemingly imperious words, by which they think the law is abrogated in such a way as to give license to sin. Yeah, he says, therefore, I simply answer, uh, the the law has been abrogated as far as justification is concerned but not as far as obedience is concerned. Obedience must be rendered, and indeed it has begun. The conventions actually say that Christians, we keep the law. And they're like, well, not perfectly, you know, just the beginning. You know, we're just kind of getting started, not until eternity, but, uh, but we, we treasure the law and we, and we seek to, to keep it. And in, and in the ways we do keep it. So, um, so anyway, it's interesting that, uh, that we kind of, We've come so far from the language of the confessions that sometimes yeah. if, you, if you take if you take confessions quotes like that standard parishioner might think you're actually uh, teaching false doctrine. Right. Oh, that's works righteousness. No, I, the the trick, and it is a trick question that I like to ask my catechumens and sometimes adult classes, is of course the and you know it, uh, are good works required of the Christian. And it's a trick question because the answer is, yes, good works are required of the Christian. But the good Lutheran has been raised to understand that we're not saved by works, so their default is no because they add words to that question that aren't there. They think what I'm asking is, are good works required in order to be saved? And the answer is no. We're saved by grace, but grace necessarily produces in us good works. And the law of God, which guides and measures our good works— Yes, of course, the Holy Spirit uses it to uh, remind us of our our sins, to convict us, to point us to our need for a Savior. But we also have that third use, the beautiful use, the one where we cherish God's law because it is the roadmap, the guide to which we can uh, we can follow, so that we can be walking in the way in the will of God. Yeah, but yeah. he talks here about slavery, which you know is very touchy for us today. But he's using this language intentionally because of the idea of obedience to a master. And obedience or slaves to righteousness seems contradictory. So how is he how is he trying to make this argument? And what would have all this language have meant for maybe the first century Roman Christians? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think they, they knew uh, this language better than we do. Um, uh, sometimes we soften it to servant, um, and there's you know that helps us kind of frame it for our own life, but doesn't quite get the full weight of the word slave. Um, what I guess what I'd like to focus on is is you know we all know John eight, which is often the gospel reading for Reformation Day, and John eight says everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, and and, and the way that I think. Most people hear that is that all humanity, Christian and non-Christian, believer and non-believer, regenerate and unregenerate, we're all slaves to sin. But if you read like how any like Reformation preacher interprets John 8, the one who commits sin is the one who's like, like living in sin unrepentantly. Um, that Christians, we have sin, but we're not committed to it. <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not practicing it. 
And if the son has set you free, you are truly free. But if you give, but if you, uh, but if you live a sinful lifestyle and you're willfully giving into temptation and you've been rebuked by, by the, the scriptures and you say, I don't care, I'm going to keep doing it. Then you have presented yourself as a slave uh, back to your former master. It's kind of like uh, when they left Egypt and, and they start wanting to go back to Egypt. It's like, what are you, what are you thinking? You want to go back to Egypt? You think things were better back there? Like, have you forgotten what that used to be? You know, it goes back to my, my analogy of like returning back to an abusive spouse when you have a great spouse. Um, and this is what he's, he's saying that, that if you, if you give in to your passions and if, and if you tell the preacher who corrects you, I don't care, I'm going to keep on doing it. You have returned to slavery. You no longer have the master Jesus. You have chosen master sin. So you've actually left the faith if you do that, uh, that you've chosen a different Lord, uh, that we all have sin, and we sin daily and much. But if even after you've been uh, corrected, you think about like Matthew 18, a guy, they, you know, they've come to you, three friends have come to you, the whole church says, hey, you can't do that. And you say, I don't care. I want it. It makes me happy, whatever, uh, that you have, you have given yourself over to slavery uh, and, now, and now you are a slave to sin, right? Uh, I think part of this is that uh, also that Lutherans have been confused by the concept of bondage of the will, that, that, that they don't realize that bondage of the will is a, is a concept that is kind of apart from the Holy Spirit's work, <laughs> right? right? That, apart, that apart from the Holy Spirit's work, that we're all bound to sin. And therefore, if we are saved, it has to be all God. It has to be all God, because apart from him, we're just, we're just bound, and we, all, we always choose evil. Uh, but the thing that, that maybe Lutherans haven't heard enough is that the Holy Spirit produces this thing called faith, and faith is a living, busy, active thing, and it makes a difference. Uh, there, so don't present yourself as a slave to sin, but instead open your ears to the voice of Jesus and follow his voice. If he says, you, you are sinning, repent. Let's do that. And if he says, you're forgiven, let's believe that. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, we might say doctrine, to which you were committed. There seems yeah. to be a connection between obedience and doctrine. Yeah. You know, I think that's one thing we have to understand, and we, we have some fancy Latin terms to explain it, but basically the idea here is you know, how you live, what you, what you do, how you worship, how you uh, experience, how you go out and live your life, the law that you follow, the obedience to Christ, your prayers, your confessions, all of that is intrinsically connected to you know, what you have been taught, what you believe, teach, and confess. And this is why it's so important that you hold – whatever congregation you're a part of, uh, true to the confessions, to the scriptures, because that's important. What you feast on, what you, what you feed your faith with, will affect your ability to obey and be obedient to God in righteousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Paul's always calling them back to catechesis, like what, what they originally learned, like back, on, back to the basics, right? Um, Absolutely. 
you know, we, we, we all have vo- multiple voices in our head, right? We have, we have the voice of, of temptation, the voice of the world, the voice of Jesus that we find in the scriptures, right? We have these different voices. And, and, and that's going to happen, and we're going to be pulled and lured, and, and it's, a, it's a lifelong battle. And You never get over fighting against sin. You never conquer it in this life that there's always going to be that luring, tempting voice. The question, I think, is, is which voice do you love and which voice does it, does it disgust you, <laughs> right? So, so hopefully, uh, listeners, hopefully you love the voice of Jesus, and hopefully when you realize you've been listening to another voice, hopefully that bothers you. It disgusts you like, oh, I did it again, right? Yeah. Right? It, bo- it bothers you. But see, that's different than, uh, than, the, than the unbeliever. The unbeliever is annoyed at the voice of Jesus, right? It's mm-hmm. annoying and, and, and delights in the voice of sin and doesn't feel bad uh, about it. Uh, so, so, you know, we, we hear these two masters calling us uh, to obey them. And the question is, is you know, and, and, at to- and granted, at times we, we kind of do both, right? Uh, but um, when the rubber meets the robe, road, uh, which voice do you love? And which voice uh, do you find annoying and you wish it would just go away? So, I've had people in my office for confession, and on several occasions they express that. They have a, you know, a St. Paul moment where they begin, you know, the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I keep on doing. And often there's great comfort when I remind them that the sheer fact that they feel this conviction, this guilt over their sin is – evidence that the Holy Spirit is with them, that their sins haven't removed them so far from Christ that they are unforgivable. But as you said, it's the unbeliever who doesn't care about their sins that says, you know, oh, the the ways of God are nothing but oppressive, and I would rather be free in regard to that. And Paul says that specifically. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, you know, you were free in regard to all of these. You know, now I'm adding words to him, but in today's yeah. language, you know, all of these patriarchal and oppressive ways of the church, you were free. But what were you yeah. getting? What were you getting? First of all, you're getting death. And and talking to believers, he's just reminding them. Remember those when we look back on our sin. The farther they get in the distance, the less we remember the consequences, and the more we remember perhaps the things that were appealing to us uh, for from those sins. And that's dr- what the devil uses to draw us and our old selves to draw us back into those sins. So St. Paul here reminds us, he says, you know, I, don't you remember the shame that comes from that? The thing you're now ashamed of those things, right? And I think that can yeah. even that that conviction from the law can be a stepping stone to the gospel because that conviction is evidence that, as you said, you love the call of your Lord more than you love the call of sin. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, just reaching back and grabbing verse 19 real quick. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think where the slave metaphor breaks down is that being a slave of Jesus is really good. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the reason uh, why, and, and the slavery is different because it's a joyful willing slavery. Like it's a slavery we delight in. Uh, and it's not a coercive relationship where he's twisting our arms to obey every day. Right. And, and wagging his finger at us. 
So it, the, the, the metaphor breaks down a little bit. So I think it's maybe why he says I'm speaking in human terms. Um, you know, this, you know that that's a, it's, it's a helpful analogy, but it, it's not complete corresponding to what people experience in, in normal slavery. So um, all analogies anyway, break apart then, eventually. Yeah. But then, but then verse 20, which you read, uh, I laugh. I laugh every time. There's certain Bible verses I laugh every time I read them. And this is one of those verses. I think, he, I think he's being kind of sarcastic. Where he, oh, says, yeah. uh, he says, you were free yeah, in regards to righteousness, right? You know, it's, it's, so what the world calls freedom, the Bible actually calls licentiousness and slavery, right? The, the, what you call freedom ain't freedom at all. What you call freedom, yeah, you were free in regards to righteousness. You know, righteousness is justification and sanctification, right? You were, you were free from salvation and good works. Yeah, you were free from that. Uh, but that's not true freedom, right? That's not the freedom that we seek, the freedom of Christ, um, free from the, which is free from the condemnation of the law and a freedom to obey um, and, and the delight that, that we find in that. Uh, and then in verse 21, as you point out, you know, the, the, the shameful lifestyle of the Gentiles. This is something that Paul does often. He kind of kind of refers to the Gentile way of life as just kind of disgusting. Uh, you know, the, you know, for Ephesians 2, you know, they're the walking dead. There's like, they're like mindless zombies that just follow their passions. Uh, and I think it's something that we need to do better, like in confirmation and, with, and when we teach our kids to make the unbelieving lifestyle unattractive right it's just unappealing it's like right. it's just shameful who, who would want that and the end of those ways is death those all lead to death um so not and but you know not only eternal death but even just terrible consequences in this life i, I have a friend uh who's made a real mess of his life um you know, without going into any details, you know, the friend now believes the gospel. I know the friend's eternally saved, uh, but there's like a wake of death from the, from the former way of life. And I think we kind of need those cautionary tales that those, those Christians can actually be really important. in the fact that they tell other Christians, Hey, I've lived that lifestyle. You don't want that. Right. You know, take me as example. You know, don't be like me. Often people say, well, I can't tell my kids not to do that because I did that when I was a teenager. Oh, no, you can tell them. Tell them not to be like you. Um, you know, that this is, this, is, this is a horrible way to live. And, and although it looks attractive, you know, you know uh, whatever it is, where people, you know, seek dopamine release after dopamine release, uh, uh, it, it's, it's not as good as you think. Um, but now that you've been set free from that and you've become slaves to God, <sighs> the fruit you get leads to sanctification. You know, think about the fruit of the Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And the one that I think is important for our culture, self-control, right? The Holy Spirit gives us this gift where we can control the self. <sighs> That's exactly what I need. And the end of that path is eternal life. So what... This is kind of what are the results of justification? The result of justification is you also get sanctification and then you get eternal life. So these are the things kind of flow from justification. And then this beautiful verse 23. 23 is the one that everybody knows. A lot of people probably out there, their confirmation verse, the wages of sin, what you earned for your life apart from Christ was death. Uh, but then there's free gifts of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and this guards against self-righteousness. So, so I think that last verse, if, if you were starting to feel self-righteous, that last verse kind of brings us back 
make sure we don't fall off the horse. It sure does. You know, we're going to have to leave it there. But, you know, I would like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Peter Elliott, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Pastor, there's so much we could dig into on this text, but I appreciate you uh, for being on the show. It's great to be with you. And I'm also grateful. Yes, I love it. I'm also grateful to you, dear Christian, for listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. We'll gather together around the scriptures again Monday and continue our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.